This episode contains mature language and situations. Listener discretion is advised. You wake, standing on the doorstep of a beautiful mansion. The front door stands open. You can hear voices, music, so many, many people. You step towards the door. You have to know what's inside. You are lost. You have no memory of how you got here. It doesn't matter. Because now, you belong to... The Grey Rooms. Season 3, Episode 3. Hi, I'm Jason, the creator of The Grey Rooms. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 3. Are you scared yet, listeners? (laughs) It's another week into our new season, and we are counting down the days to the end of the year. Thank God. 2020 has been a beast like no other, but we are hard at work to give purpose to those nightmares and deliver some fright right to your doorstep. This season has started off absolutely amazingly, and we have nothing but you to thank for that. So thanks for your listens, thanks for your five-star reviews and ratings, everything. Thank you all. Seriously, you have made this nightmare of a year so magical. Oh, oh, and speaking of nightmares, we'd like to remind everyone that submissions for season four are open. So if you have any terrifying tales you think might frighten us, send them on over so we can take a stab at it. (laughs) There will be a link in the show notes with more information on the process and what we're looking for and how to submit. But as for now, stay safe, listeners. We hope the only terrors you're facing in 2020 are the ones we deliver. Settle in, tuck the covers in tight, and enjoy the show.
I lay there for a long moment, just trying to breathe. I was back inside the manor. Colorful painted tiles spilled down the hallway. It was lined with doors, of course. Carpets with complex woven patterns snaked their way down the center of the corridor. I heard his footsteps first. The far end of the hall was shrouded in darkness. He stepped into the light like a wraith emerging from the great beyond. He was tall, almost impossibly so. He had on a suit, tailored and handsome, but dated. His dark hair was combed and short, like a mortician's. A long, drawn face stopped at a hard chin, and his eyes were the blue of the ocean on a stormy day. He stopped a few paces away, and I staggered to my feet. Ah, welcome back to the Grey Rooms, Mr. Beckett. I stood there for a moment, still feeling dazed. I had no idea what to say. Ahem, <clears throat> Alma asked me to apologize on her behalf. She hopes you don't think too poorly of her. That woke me up. Our tea by the fire had taken quite the turn. She did throw me down a well. <laughs> Alma is... driven. Quite brilliant. I think she feels the need to prove herself. You understand. What about you? Do you need to hurt me to prove a point? I'm long past the point of proving anything to anyone. He raised an arched, mocking eyebrow. Unless... that's something you'd like. I'm... no. I'm good. All right then. If you follow me, I can show you where you can wash up. Get into some comfortable clothes. Have a meal, if you'd like. I don't. Do I have to go back into a room? He had begun to turn away. His head swung back. The look on his face seemed pained for a moment. Then it was gone. Yes, Mr. Beckett. You have to enter a room. Eventually. That is, after all, why you're here. But you can relax for a time first. Get comfortable. And we can have a chat. Alma said you were very inquisitive. He waited for my nod. When he had it, the tall man turned back down the hall and started off. I followed. Oh, sir! What's your name? He did not slow his step. Glanced back over his shoulder as he spoke. You can call me Bob, Mr. Beckett. Everyone else does. Bob led me through a series of hallways and doors I'd never seen before. I had the strong sense we were in a part of the manor entirely new to me. I made use of a spa room with stark white tiles and black grout to wash myself. In another, 
a sitting room with rows of wardrobes, he allowed me to choose some fresh clothing. The uniform I'd arrived in stunk of sweat and blood and mildew, and I was glad to be rid of it. I chose for myself a crisp white shirt with buttons and simple black slacks. From another drawer, I pulled a navy blue sweater jacket to ward off the chill of the manor. And from a chest, I procured a worn but clean pair of workman's boots. The attendant asked if I wanted something to eat, but I waved him off. What I needed was a drink. He smiled and led me on without a word. Apparently, the Grey Rooms have a bar. Over a pair of swinging saloon doors, a small sign simply said, Stone's Tavern. Inside, there was a long bar top on the right, and a couple of stools. A trio of deep booths stood along the left wall and a jukebox already playing was tucked away in the corner. A hole in the wall that would have looked right at home in any port in the Twelve Galaxies. Make yourself comfortable, Mr. Beckett. What's your drink? Gin. A gimlet if you've got the limes. I'll muddle my way through. Just a moment. I took a seat in the middle booth. The padding wrapped most comfortably around me and I settled my hands on the tabletop. I flexed my toes within my newly acquired boots. My eyes closed and I allowed the music on the jukebox to calm my frayed nerves. I may have even dozed off. As it seemed only a moment later, I heard Bob setting down a glass. A gimlet, as requested. He'd poured one for himself as well. The citrus artfully placed on the lip of the fluted glassware. I blinked my eyes, trying to focus, and sat up in my seat. He raised his glass, and I did the same. My attendant made a face as he sipped at the concoction. You're not a gin man. I've only consumed alcohol a handful of times. I'm still learning what is to my taste. You don't strike me as a man new to the world, Bob. I am not. But my experience with mortal indulgences has been spotty over the years. Implying you yourself are not mortal. Surely you've guessed as much by now. Alma walked you across the lawn like a dog on a leash to hear her tell it. An interesting trick. How did she do it? He sipped his drink again, more appreciative this time. Alma, myself, and the other attendants of the manor are not mortal. Then, what are you? Different. 
than yourself. And Todd, of course. Todd is like me. You are both mortal, though I wouldn't say you and Todd have much else in common. I took a deep pull of my cocktail. I could feel the alcohol going to work, and I relaxed back into the booth. Did Miss Alma tell you what prompted our walk? You tried the old, I'll just go out the front door trick. <laughs> Everyone does it at some point, Mr. Beckett. You shouldn't think it reflects poorly on you. Though, I hope she made her point. I could feel for a moment a sympathetic pulse of pain in my leg where the break had happened. Now healed somehow by the nature of the manner. Point well made, sir. I took another sip. And you can tell her that I hold no ill will. She said that some of the others would have been more direct in correcting my behavior. I understand she was just showing me the error of my ways. He finished his drink and set the empty glass down on the table. The Grey Rooms, Ash Manor, is a special place. As I'm sure you've been told a few times now, your role on the project is crucial. I have been with the project for some time, almost as long as the Warden, and I have a great deal of experience now in ensuring our guests are well taken care of. I'm sorry I wasn't here to greet you. Unfortunately, there was an incident not all that long ago, and the repercussions for me were... unpleasant. He looked off to the side as he spoke, his eyes wandering to another booth down the line. A long moment passed. But I'm here now, and it is my fervent wish that you settle into a nice long stay with us. It's unpleasant to experience what the rooms hold, that's true, but you're very capable. He caught my eye, directly. Not like other men, correct? I found myself at a loss for words, so I just nodded. He reached into his suit coat and pulled out a small notebook bound in leather. He flipped a few pages deep before using a silk ribbon as a bookmark. I have a few things to go over with you, and then you are free to ask whatever questions you'd like. Again, I nodded. Your attempt to take a walk. It's understandable. You're in an unfamiliar place. You're afraid. You want some measure of control. So, we would propose a compromise. When you emerge from a door, we'd ask that you wait for one of us to come along. But once you're situated, you can explore the manor without a guide. I raised an eyebrow. Your faith in me is touching, Bob. But I'm not sure I could even find that bathroom again if I needed it. The rooms are capricious, it's true. But for someone with a strong will... They're actually quite safe and simple to navigate. He gestured back toward the door. The room you and Alma shared tea in was called the Hearth Porch. While the manor's hallways may shift and change, the rooms are a constant amid the chaos. P. 
Picture that place in your mind and say its name. I did as he asked. I summoned an image in my mind. The wicker chairs. The kettle on the hook. The roaring fire. The hearth porch. All at once I could feel the house around me in a way I hadn't before. I could feel the creak of the bar's walls settling. I could hear the clack of the tiles in the corridor outside. I could smell the fire from the porch, and I knew. I somehow knew if I walked out that door I'd be fine. I'd be able to find my way unerringly back to the cozy room where Alma had taken control of my body. Bob must have seen something pass over my face. <laughs> I see it's working. It is. How is this possible? The rooms are a precious jewel, Mr. Beckett. A dear prize, which management has worked long and hard to maintain and refine and expand. This gift is just one facet of the jewel. For our purposes, in this conversation, this facet represents hope. Hope that we can trust you, that we can work together for some time. And, despite the strange nature of this work, that you come to trust us. I shook my head to clear it in that sense of purpose. That clean line to the hearth porch floated away. You brought me here against my will. The rooms are... <sighs> They're torture. You're torturing me. Yes, we are. A hostage is not the co-worker of his captors. We are not working together. That is how you see it today. There are many... Many tomorrows ahead of us. I tipped back my drink, finishing it, and set the glass back down on the table, perhaps a touch too hard. I want to know why I'm here, Bob. I don't want to be your friend. <sighs> You're frustrated. I understand. I don't but let me see if I can try. I was brought to the manor against my will and my memory was stripped clean. Correct. You won't tell me why I'm here or why I'm supposed to enter the rooms. You won't tell me why the warden thinks I'm special. Indeed. Todd and I are the only mortals here. You'll let me wander the manor alone if I want, but you put some kind of magic in my head so I could do it. Excellent summation, Mr. Beckett. Well, hell, Bob. What can you tell me? He looked at me for a long, long moment. Those cool blue eyes just staring back at me. It was in the little moments like this that I could tell he wasn't human. That he wasn't a person, just a thing, pretending. I can tell you that your choices matter. That your mortality is a gift, not a weakness. He glanced down at his hands on the table and sighed before looking back up at me. And I can tell you what your choice of rooms are. 
You should be able to find your way without assistance this time. I knew then that I was never going to get answers from these monsters. But his words were so interesting. My choices matter. My mortality is a gift. There was something important there. I could sense it. Any other questions? Plenty. But it seems I'll have to find my own answers. You can try, I suppose. For all the good it will do you. He opened that book again, flipping through a few pages. What are my choices? We have a room upon the water. A woman on a sailing ship. Or a man on a farm, adrift in a sea of wheat. Interesting imagery. Hmm. The farm. The man on the sea of wheat. Very well. Your room is a bad harvest. The door is a tall, metal thing in an arch. Very recognizable. Picture it, and say the name in your mind. The manor will show you the way. Ahem. <clears throat> Would you like another drink? No. I think I'll just sit here for a bit and then... I'll go face my death. Again. As you wish, Mr. Beckett. Bob? Yes? Are you happy? Somewhere deep in the clouds of scattered thoughts and motes of light that was my memory, something had come into focus. If the enemy refuses to give up hard intelligence, there are other types of information. Emotional reactions, for example, can tell you a lot about a person's state of mind. About their fears, their worries, their hopes and dreams. Bob's reaction to my question was pronounced. His face became like a statue's, unmoving, chiseled in stone. But the expression around the mouth, the tightening around the eyes. Yes, Mr. Beckett. I've been with the project for many, many years. And I'm perfectly happy with the position I have. I sat back in my seat. I nodded. Well then, I'll try. If you think the project is worth it, I'll try to give it some time. Get to know you and Miss Alma. And maybe you're right. Maybe we will come to trust each other. Very well then. Do hurry along to your room in a timely fashion. If you don't, well, I'll have to come find you. Don't have to worry about me, Bob. See you soon. The man they called Bob walked from the room, and the darkness beyond the barred doors swallowed him up. I sat there for a long, long while, playing with the base of my glass, twisting it this way and that. Bob had lied to me. He'd look me right in the eye and lied. And he was bad at it.
I smiled as I stood and left the bar. I smiled as I followed that glowing line in my head to the rusty, decrepit door. And I was still smiling when I opened the door and stepped inside. Jack bought the farm with his mother's inheritance. He thought it would be a good investment. Cursed bad luck. In the corner of the living room, the snowy reception of the television plays to itself. He only has it on for company these days. Dirty yellow light pours through the threadbare orange curtains and partially illuminates the mountain of empty beer cans that carpet the grubby floor. The place smells like old takeout food and ashtrays. Jack shifts in and out of an uncomfortable slumber, his legs dangling over the edge of the dirty chair. Sleep is fleeting, kept at bay by anxiety and stress. Oh, fucking farm. Who the hell would buy a fucking farm? Curse bad luck. A fly is circling his head, a fat blue bottle that buzzes through the air with impossible speed. He takes a half-hearted swat, but only manages to clip the front of his nose. It brings water to his eyes immediately. Right, you little fucker. That's it. The declaration of war is backed up by his twisted face and thin lips that curl over his tobacco-stained teeth. He grabs the newspaper from the discolored coffee table and gets into position. Eventually... The fly comes to rest on the edge of the chair and seems content to inspect the newly discovered patch of crumbs. Wait for it. Wait for it. He brings the paper down onto the chair with remarkable vigor. Almost immediately, though, he feels lightheaded and disoriented, reaching out to steady his balance. There's a swarm of black dots swimming in and out of his vision. Fuck! Breathing slowly and deeply, he eventually regains composure and warily stands, hands positioned just slightly above his buttocks for the inevitable back pain that will follow. He lets out a little yelp as he straightens, then sighs as he surveys the bombshell that is his lounge. Oh yes, the place has gone downhill, he thinks. The problem is he can't bring himself to do anything about it. Liz used to deal with all that stuff before she left. Wouldn't even entertain the thought of letting his half-assed hands on any of the chores. The tears come as a surprise to Jack. When he came home last week to the foreclosure notice pinned to the front door, it all became a bit too real for him. Since then, he's been in and out of a drunken stupor mumbling his troubles at the TV. But now the beer money has run as dry as the soil outside. They bought the farm 12 months ago, just before autumn kicked in. 
Liz was the one that fell in love with the place, said it would be great to get away from the bustle of the city, bit of peace and solitude. They had no idea that the next summer would be the hottest in decades. Cursed bad luck. It started as a big adventure, but neither of them realized just how much work it would be. The fun wore off quickly, and Liz soon got bored. She left everything to Jack while she got dolled up, gallivanting about with God knows who and spending the last of his money. The arguments became frequent and loud, explosively so. Three months went by without any lovemaking or affection of any kind. The farm was destroying them. It was just before the fires that she told him it wasn't working. Something along the lines of it not being the life for her, that she didn't love him anymore, etc., etc. He begged, got down on all fours, and implored for her not to go. And then the truth came out. She told him there was someone else. Jack kept pleading anyway, said they could get through it, work it out. He only stopped after her final bombshell that she was two months pregnant. Bitch. The fly is back. It's brought a friend. Fuck off! Jack swings wildly at the pests as they spin in formation, only tauntingly inches from his face. The newspaper crunches as he tightens his grip around the end. He clenches his teeth and prepares for round two, and then he swings. Damn. The buzz continues, but is fading slightly. Stepping over the beer cans, he follows the noise into the kitchen and winces at the raucous din as the flies bounce frantically between the blinds and glass pane of the window. His mouth drops open in surprise. The flies are only white noise now. If he wasn't sober, he would just put it down to the booze, but his last drink was two days ago. His vision is as clear as day. He slowly edges closer to the window, thinking that if he can creep stealthily enough towards it, then the image might not fade. Here he is, though, only a few feet away from the glass, and the view is no longer the anhydrous scene of devastation he's been used to, but a bountiful mix of greens and browns. Impossible. Still afraid that if he gets too close, the view will change, he arches his neck slowly to take a better look. There isn't a patch of ground that is cropless, row after row sporting lush, leafy greens. Some 200 yards back, next to the poor excuse of a scarecrow that came with the farm, half a dozen crows are squabbling, viciously swooping down on each other with talons raised. Jack opens the back door to their discordant cries, still half expecting to wake up. Instead, the heat of the afternoon surrounds him, and the birds continue their shrieks. There's been no rain for three months, scorching temperatures, hottest on record according to the TV. None of it makes any sense. The crops extend for as far as he can see, even the areas he doesn't remember planting out. He affords himself a brief smile and 
contemplates that his run of bad luck might be coming to an end. Blasted crow's gonna eat all my crops. He grabs a broom from the corner of the kitchen and marches toward the feathered pests, holding the end of the wooden handle out in front as though it were a bayonet. As soon as he reaches the border of the field, his socks begin to squelch into the impossibly damp soil. He treads carefully, monitoring the ground and avoiding the particularly darker brown patches. Sweat is already dripping down his back and running down the side of both cheeks. His eyes are on the scarecrow. Useless bastard! His pace increases as an irrational rush of adrenaline kicks in. Since he was a kid, he's been wary of scarecrows. Its faded red and black checkered shirt is partly stuffed with old straw. The legs are made from burlap sacks that dangle loosely to either side. But it's the painted face, red smile, and black eyes that gives it a sinister undertone. He shudders as he steps past it. Not so far ahead, the crows continue their fighting. He wonders what has them so worked up. One of them breaks free from the pack and flies upward with something in its beak. Almost immediately, though, the crow drops the object as one of its competitors drives the bird back. He watches as they thrash it out on the ground. Oi! He picks up his pace, fearing they're destroying his new crops. Maniacally, he waves the broom in front of him and clumsily staggers around until the soft ground eventually wins and brings him to his knees. The crows offer some mocking caws as they fly off. Stupid fucking birds! He scouts the ground in front of him. A few yards ahead, he spots something in the dirt. As he stands and wipes his knees down, he squints into the glaring sun and cranes his neck. Uneasiness washes over him. Warily, he begins to edge closer to the object, moving past the row of cabbages convincing himself that his eyes are playing tricks. Each squelching step fills him with dread and drives his heart rate faster until he's finally standing above it. He bends down and picks up the blackened object. It's warm from the sun and shaking in his hand. A strange, garbled noise leaves his lips as he studies the small, charred human ear. He looks around, suddenly feeling as though he's being watched. Standing in the reflection of the stationary cloud above, he waits. For what, he's not sure. He's suddenly very thirsty, a craving for liquor. His body feels heavy, as if moving would require a mammoth effort. A hot and powerful gust of air takes him by surprise sending his shirt tail flapping and rattling the corn in the field, only a few yards ahead. He watches in horror as more charred ears are shaken to the ground. What in the name of horseshit? When the breeze finally stops, he remains frozen to the spot, blood pumping in his ear and stomach churning. The smell of burning meat hangs in the air now. It instinctively makes him turn his head away from the corn and wretch at the ground. An eerie silence falls across the farm. But deep down in the pit of his stomach, Jack knows there's more to come. He waits. It is the gentle crackling sound from behind that grabs his attention. 
He slowly begins to turn, still holding the broom in his left hand and the human ear in his right. A line of crows are arrayed across both arms of the scarecrow. Heads cocked and eyes on him. It is the legs of the scarecrow that are on fire, the burlap sacks full of straw disintegrating and sending glowing embers floating toward the dark ground. The hungry flames soon begin to look at the air beneath the crows, but the birds don't move. Shoo! They continue to observe him, seemingly oblivious to the heat and their impending fate. The legs of the scarecrow burn quickly, and the fire spreads to the shirt, soon igniting the straw within. The first cries of pain begin, but still the crows do not take flight. Their beady black eyes continue to observe Jack, even as the flames start lapping at their bodies. He throws the broom towards them, and even though it strikes the underside of the arm, they remain unperturbed. Their blood-curdling cries get gradually louder, and Jack turns his eyes away, unable to look as the fire begins to consume them. He clamps his hands tightly around his ears as the combined cries approach a deafening level. But it feels as though their screams are trapped inside his head. It's unbearable. The mud is covering his ankles now as he continues to sink into the ground. He panics and takes an urgent step forward, knocking one of the cabbages with his left foot. When it stops rolling, he immediately screams and gags. Nestled between the lush green leaves is a charred head. Bits of blackened meat attached to the child-sized skull. Suddenly, his legs refuse to move. He's sinking, but can't do a damn thing about it. Helplessly, he watches as the leaves of the other cabbages begin to unfurl in front of him, revealing rows of burnt heads. Child-sized faces gruesomely disfigured beyond recognition. He reminds himself to breathe and wills his legs to move. Finally, he begins to inch toward the house, but it seems so far away. Every movement seems to be taking him further into the mud. His feet and legs brush against unknown objects in the ground, some hard, some soft, and he can only imagine the nastiness that is waiting for him down there. Jack is up to his knees now, but he isn't even in line with the scarecrow yet. Sweat runs from his forehead down into his eyes, and it burns. He plants the ball of his hands into the sockets, and they squelch like the ground beneath him. The dirt only makes things worse. Pushing against the ground to try and get leverage, his palm connects with something solid. What he brings out of the ground appears to be a piece of blackened meat. This field of horrors is harvesting something unnatural, something vile. Help! Help! Someone! Jack takes another laborious step forward and steps on something harder. It feels like bone. Fuck! He's up to his waist now and just about level with the scarecrow. The breeze is starting to get blustery. A change is coming. Just like on that day, Jack thinks, cursed bad luck. His breathing is labored and blood pounds in his ear as he drags himself slowly through the mud. 
The back door is still so far away. He followed her one afternoon. Turned out she was shacking up with Tom, their closest neighbor. His vineyard just half a mile south down the road. Jack guessed it was the cars, iron gate, and fairy tale house that sucked her in. She always was a sucker for money, went through it quicker than a hot knife through butter. It was the drink that took him to the house that afternoon. But when all's said and done, it was pure rage that made him leave the car and march into the woods with the matches and gasoline. He counted six dry lightning strikes that afternoon, the perfect cover. It would be just another fire on a map that was already nearly half yellow. Christ, it was quick though. The whole place was ablaze in seconds. But then the damn wind came out of nowhere and took it out of control. Cursed bad luck. How was he to know what would happen? The mud and gore are up to his chest now. He tries to edge forward again, but his movement only makes it worse, and he sinks further in. Panicking. He scrambles at the ground with his fingers, but he can't get any traction. Now it's up to his neck. Is this how it ends? Something is happening with the mud. His chest is tightening as though the earth is constricting around him. He's stuck, unable to move from the neck down. He feels so exposed, vulnerable, and his eyes feel like they're on fire. I'm sorry! I'm sorry. The wind took the fire on a journey across 2,000 meters of dry grass and vegetation. It killed 34 children at that kindergarten and two teachers. He watched it all unfold on the television with the other evacuees at the community center in the safe zone. The news even showed some pictures of the victims at home, happy and smiling with their families. He thought about killing himself for days afterwards, but he just couldn't find the courage. The thought of confessing was too much to bear. He still can't sleep, hardly eats, and the only way he can cope is through inebriation. The nightmares when he does drift off are unbearable. Somehow his farm was left untouched. It would have been best if the fire took it as far as the insurance money was concerned. More cursed bad luck. As he futilely tries to struggle against the ground that has now returned to its original arid state, he looks toward the scarecrow to see the charred and smoldering human body that now hangs from the blackened wood of the cross. He watches as it slowly unhooks itself from its perch. It begins to walk towards him through the crops that are withering in front of his eyes, leaving a trail of human devastation, skulls, blackened organs, charred remains of innards. He didn't think he'd get away with it. You don't get away with things like that. 
fuck? Not like this, though. No, I'll do it myself this time. I will. I, I promise. Please. The charred body does not stop. It leaves behind footsteps filled with embers, lighting the surrounding crops on fire. Jack can already feel the additional heat against his cheeks. And then he hears the buzz of a fly as it circles his head. Cursed bad luck. The voice comes from the blackened figure. Sinewy black lips curl into a menacing smile, revealing teeth that are so contrastingly white. He knows it's Liz. Something in the face. Through all the gristle and bone, he still recognizes her. The ground around him is ablaze. This is your harvest, Jack. This is what you The crows are back, circling above in silence. As she draws closer, she brings the fire with her, and it soon becomes unbearable. The first of the flames lick at his face. Cursed. Bad. Luck. Written by Mark Taus, with performances by Jennifer Rozelle as Liz and Alistair Mackey as Jack. The Old Attendant was written by Michael Zenke, featuring performances by Graham Rowett as Bob and Eddie Cooper as Beckett. Musical composition was by J.M. Scherf. Episode artwork, web development, and creative direction was by Cassie Pertit. Social media and Patreon management is by Brooks Bigley. Videography is by Hale Scherf, and audio engineering and sound design was by me, Jason Wilson. Well, my dear, darling listener, another descent into madness and another episode down for season three of The Grey Rooms. And this has been a really fun ride so far, hasn't it? (laughs) Seriously, though, we really could not do this without all of you. And we would like to take the time to thank our patrons once again, and to any of those who have taken the time to leave us a five-star rating and review. Those reviews keep us at the top of the charts and makes it easier for more tortured souls to find the show. Patrons like Amy Nikolai, Arthur Unk, Diver Ellie, Ellie Dowell, Emily Cullen, Haley's Vomit, Jackalbot Snows, Jason Porus, Jessica Finch, Kelly Bear, Laura Lupinetti, Lynn Browning, Lizzie B, Megan Pruitt, Michael Philick BG, Paige H3.14, Patrick Stewart, Sean Geary, Spirit Live, Stacy Thuis, Talicia Gullman, The Original Nick Show, Brian Brylow, Jose Torres, and Aaron Anthony. The Grey Rooms is also streaming for free on Spotify. 
Just get the Spotify app or open the browser and search The Gray Rooms. And you can find out more by joining us on social media. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Reddit. We also took your advice and extended an olive branch to all the tortured souls who have passed through the rooms. Our emotional support group is always looking to help you with all of your needs. And let's not forget, feel free to reach out to all of the authors, voice actors, and members of management and the staff. Not to mention just all of you great listeners in our very awesome Discord channel. Thank you so much for giving us your listen. We truly appreciate it. And we're going to go ahead and get back to work because we have a lot more to do. So thanks again, and we will see you next week.